I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Let's get the balloon stuff out of the way first before we get to Trump's new and far more serious documents crime and his lawyer's amazing claim that Trump did not steal the classified document. He just did not give back the classified document folder so he could keep it in his bedroom to cover the nightlight on the phone that was keeping him awake. Didums couldn't sweep, so Didums used the envelope with the nookie nookie secrets in them? Yes. Four downed balloons and a false alarm is a lot of downed balloons for an eight-day span. But as logic suggests, administration officials are leaking that they learned a lot from letting that first Chinese spy airship travel for a while before they shot it down over the Atlantic. We do not know what, if anything, they have yet recovered from the debris, but it is clear our knowledge of what is and is not a foreign spying device has grown exponentially in the last two weeks. Put all the parts of the story together, and it's obvious why the Trump administration did not know there had been at least three of these over U.S. territory during its time in charge, yet the Biden administration could suddenly say, yeah, there had been. Basically, the one that took the grand tour of the Midwest, allowed the Pentagon to say, oh, that's what those are. Also, as the military expert Tyler Rogaway from the War Zone at thedrive.com has been writing since at least 2017, this is probably less about more incursions into U.S. airspace than it is about a greater willingness by the Pentagon to shoot the damn things down. After the Trump administration completely ignored them, and for the first two years, Biden's Defense Department didn't do much better. Rogaway also raised the intriguing possibility that the Pentagon's newfound willingness to discuss UFOs 
the willingness that began about six, seven years ago was partly retrospective stupidity in believing maybe those were not spy balloons, but UFOs, and partly cover for the reality that Americans were now beginning to see the drones and balloons of other countries, and we had to say something. And yes, in this last two weeks, Marjorie Taylor Greene, speaking on behalf of the Moron Caucus, has insisted the balloon was probably filled with a bioweapon and nukes, and she's also insisted that we should have blown it up immediately, thus, you know, detonating the nukes and spreading the bioweapons. And she has also insisted the president acted too slowly. And she has also insisted the president has acted too quickly. And she has sworn at the Defense Department analysts during the top secret briefings. And she has then tweeted about the lack of briefings, even though there had already been a new briefing scheduled by the time she tweeted. And yes, she has the intelligence of a mackerel. A dead one. Lost behind all this, well, hot air balloon juice, if you prefer, was another shoe dropping in the case of the classified documents Trump stole. And the other shoe is this is now the case of the classified documents Trump stole and disseminated. And typically nearly all of the media missed that other shoe. That word disseminated. They nearly all reported that Trump's legal team had found and turned over pages with classified markings discovered in December at Mar-a-Lago and had also turned over a laptop, a laptop which itself contained classified documents. Buried in most of the accounts was the startling detail from a story which had seemingly long since lost its ability to startle. The classified documents, which Trump was not legally allowed to have, had been turned over to a campaign aide, which anybody cleared to see them is not legally allowed to do, and the campaign aide, who was not legally cleared to see them, duplicated the documents, which she was not legally allowed to do, and then she apparently duplicated them again, which she was also not legally allowed to do, onto a thumb drive. 18 U.S. Code 798A, Disclosure of Classified Information, quote, whoever knowingly and willfully communicates, furnishes, transmits, or otherwise makes available to an unauthorized person such documents, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both, unquote. Up until this part of this story broke, Trump had the thinnest of legal grounds to defend himself against charges like, you know, mishandling of classified information, violation of the Presidential Records Act, espionage. But once you start disseminating classified information, or as the law refers to it, disclosure, that thinnest of legal grounds disappears entirely. The detail that has dripped out is that the scanned documents were from the classified evening briefings Trump used to get, and his latest lawyer said nobody realized were classified. Must have thought classified was the name of the manufacturer of the folder. And there was an empty folder marked classified evening briefing in Trump's bedroom, and nobody realized that would be classified either. And then there is the entire second question about the computer, the one that the classified documents were scanned into. Was the computer connected to the Internet at any point? Was the material scanned and transferred to yet another computer? If not, what was the point of the thumb drive? And who had the computer? What else was the computer used for? Who had access to the computer? And who did the scanning? Well, 
we think we know the last answer, but it itself creates yet a third new problem for Trump. CNN's Caitlin Collins, the former Daily Caller writer, now inexplicably anchoring the network's latest disastrous morning show, originally tweeted, quote, the laptop belonged to Chamberlain Harris, who worked for the Save America PAC. Then Caitlin Collins deleted that tweet without explanation, which is when the Internet realized it should figure out who Chamberlain Harris was. Well, she was a coding assistant while in college at SUNY Albany, and she was acting president of the campus chapter of Turning Point USA, a little fascism project founded by Charlie Kirk. She was an intern at the Heritage Foundation and at the White House. She was an intern. And then she worked on the Trump scam Save America PAC. And Trump would also let her post under his name on Truth Social. Oh, and she studied abroad while at SUNY Albany, too. She studied abroad in Russia. If it's her, she's in a world of hurt. If it's not her, somebody else is in a world of hurt. Because the best excuse this newest Trump lawyer, Timothy Parlator, can come up with for the illicit scanning of the classified documents, and he says she scanned all of those, is that she had no idea she wasn't supposed to do that, as if it mattered what she did or did not know. It's like the receipt of stolen goods. What matters is if the person who gave them to you knew they were stolen. And the by now familiar immediate leap of a Trump lawyer from semi-plausible sophistry to outright absurdity came very quickly in this case. This new Trump lawyer, Parlator, I wish they would number the lawyers, it would be easier. This Parlator said, quote, the folder is one of the more humorous aspects of this whole thing. This is not a classified folder. It's a manila folder that says classified evening summary on it. And it was in the president's bedroom. He has one of those landline telephones next to his bed, and it has a blue light on it, and it keeps him up at night. So he took the manila folder and he put it over it so it would keep the light down so he could sleep at night. And when DOJ found out about it, they went crazy. They actually gave me a subpoena to say, give us over this empty folder that means nothing. All right, Trump, get another new lawyer. This one has officially run out of crap already. The only way to keep the nightlight on the phone from keeping Trump awake all night was to cover it with a manila folder, which read classified evening summary. Nothing else would suffice. Read classified evening summary, but couldn't possibly be classified or mean anything even though the government has been trying to get everything classified back from this bastard for two years, and it keeps turning out, oh, he kept more stuff than he said, and scanned it, and gave it to somebody at one of his campaign fundraising scams who spent time in Russia. Of course, we have this new, 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 new lawyer, Nightlight Boy, because apparently all of Trump's other new lawyers are now witnesses in the special counsel's prosecution of him. Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob have now each appeared in front of Smith's grand jury, and the consensus is they are there about the document Corcoran wrote and Bob signed last June that swore that all the classified documents Trump had at Mar-a-Lago had been turned back to the government during the voluntary search. 
There does not seem to have been a postscript on this document that read, except the classified folder Donkey uses to hide his nightlight because nothing else in the world will do except a 100% official government-issued double-thick classified Manila folder. (sighs) The premise here by the Jack Smith team is to get one or both of the lawyers, Bob and or Corcoran, to testify that they were told to sign and or write this document by Trump, even though Trump knew he still had boatloads of classified materials, in which case they have an open and shut obstruction of justice case against Trump and maybe separate charges of lying to the Department of Justice. And obviously the deal here is it's not true. And if Trump didn't order them to say it's not true, then either Corcoran as the author or Bob as the autographer, they are the ones who are guilty of obstruction and lying. If you missed the other new amazingly detailed leak, it turns out Trump's 2020 campaign hired a group called the Berkeley Research Group to study voting results in six states looking for that fraud that Trump dreamt of. For voting irregularities, dead people voting, voting machines malfunctioning, voting by undocumented immigrants, machine tampering, ballot harvesting, votes from vacant addresses, people voting twice, voter birth anomalies, uh, the undead people voting, anything Trump could hang a claim of a fixed election on. And of course, they found next to nothing. And they told him that. What might be the most interesting is the timing. This was all done and the results, we got nothing turned over before January 6th, and if the timing is more than a coincidence, it reinforces the idea that the coup attempt was part of a sequence, but the last part of a sequence of Trump's extra-constitutional attempts to retain power and end democracy. We also get word from MAGA Haberman and others in the New York Times what kind of questions Jack Smith's team has been firing at witnesses at its grand jury. Plenty of Mar-a-Lago document questions, plenty of January 6th and fake electors and fundraising questions, too. Did Trump, to quote the New York Times story, consume detailed information about foreign countries while in office? How extensively did he seek information about whether voting machines had been tampered with? Did he indicate he knew he was leaving when his term ended? And just to tie it all neatly together, quote, in addition to the documents and January 6th investigations, Mr. Smith appears to be pursuing an offshoot of the January 6th case, examining Save America, a pro-Trump political action committee through which Mr. Trump raised millions of dollars with his false claims of election fraud. That investigation includes looking into how and why the committee's vendors were paid. Wait. Save America Political Action Committee? Where have we heard about them before? Save America PAC? Oh, right. The tweet Caitlin Collins of CNN deleted without explanation. Quote, the laptop belonged to Chamberlain Harris, who worked for the Save America PAC. I'll add this postscript, who didn't know she wasn't supposed to scan all those classified evening summaries. They were only there and loose and in the pile because Trump had emptied the folders they came in so he could use one of those folders to cover up the light on the phone in his bedroom that was keeping him up at night.
ahead. It said, do not bring your gun into the MRI room because the magnets could pull it off of you and it could fire accidentally. But he is a gun rights advocate and he'll be damned if he follows what the man says. Well, he was a gun rights advocate. CNN has its next great news idea. First it was Gail King, then the Bill Maher experiment that didn't go too well. And now, no way, no way. There was a football game last night, and there was actually a mini-controversy over the Super Bowl pregame show presidential interview, which, if I was not telling you, did not happen. You probably would not have noticed did not happen. I am the expert on how politicians completely misunderstand what and how often sports fans think of them and the importance of politics and covering politics, which is not much. The day they said... You're going to have to do the Super Bowl pregame show interview with the president because Matt Lauer can't get to the White House in time. I said, can't we just cancel it? Things I promise not to tell coming up. And a farewell to one of the greats at my alma mater, ESPN. That's next. This is Countdown. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Changing up the order just for today for reasons that will become evident, the Super Bowl gets decided by a heavy breathing penalty. Derek Jeter news and a great loss at ESPN ahead. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Leandro Matias de Noveas of Brazil. The pro-gun rights attorney was taking mom to get an MRI at the Laboratorio Cura at Sao Paulo last month. The staff told him the M in MRI stands for magnetic. Do not wear any jewelry or metal objects when you take your mother inside the facility. But he's a pro-gun rights attorney, or at least he was. So he kept his God-given concealed handgun in his waistband, and hot damn, the magnetic field was strong enough to pull the gun off of his body. It apparently dropped to the floor and fired and hit him in the stomach. And after two weeks of hospitalization, he gone. If I sound cruel, we began to lose our way the day we stopped mocking these clowns. The runner-up, Florida Congressman Matt Gates. speaking of mockable clowns, as soon as the Republicans took over the House Judiciary Committee, they voted that everybody in the room would recite the Pledge of Allegiance, because Republicans behave like fourth graders. Well, Gates got to select who would receive the honor of leading the first pledge, and he selected Corey Beekman, a combat veteran of the U.S. Army National Guard from Pensacola. And Beekman came to Washington and showed off his Purple Heart and did not mention his outstanding accusation of murder against him from 2019 and that whole wacky standoff with the police thing. Gates has apologized to the victim's family, but he said, what? We were supposed to do a background check for possible criminal activity on the guy? <laughs> yeah, Matt Gates in his office and a background check for possible criminal activity. That is pretty absurd, isn't it? But our winner, CNN's Chris Licht, chairman of Worldwide News, or whatever it is they, they put on TV on CNN nowadays. Licht has a primetime problem. They are all headed off the ratings cliff, but CNN is running fastest, and let's review briefly. First, Licht canceled Don Lemon's successful primetime show and moved him into the mornings with two hapless co-hosts, making two holes where there had only been one. Then he tried to get Jake Tapper to do the 9 p.m. show, and Jake got no ratings and then said, I need to go back to my old shift. Then came the, let's have a comedian do the news, and the John Stewart, Arsenio Hall, Trevor Noah rumor, even though CNN first approached Stewart about doing the news in 2001. Then Lick picked up the leftovers from Bill Maher's 11 p.m. show on HBO and put them on CNN at 11.30 Friday nights, and CNN's ratings went down. And then he wanted to hire Gail King, even though she's on in the morning and mornings are not the same as the evenings. And now per Puck News, Licht has decided on what, quote, could be the boldest and potentially most disruptive programming move. Licht is now in negotiations to bring Charles Barkley to CNN for a news-oriented primetime show. Listen, I am the last person to say you can't have a sports guy do a news show but even if this were a good idea charles barkley is already on tv a lot 
and he likes his time off. I know him 35 years. I can't imagine he knows what the workload would be like this, even if he is interested. And there is no particular reason Turner Sports would just say, sure, take him off our successful network so you can put him on your failing one. But look, Chris Licht, everything else you've thought out so far has gone well, hasn't it? CNN's Chris, did I mention that when he and I worked together at MSNBC, we used to think he ate paste licked two days. Worst person in the world! This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, my Jalen Hurts in the worst possible way. The Super Bowl decided on a penalty that will go into the books as defensive holding, but looked more like defensive breathing. The Chiefs beat the Eagles 38-35 in what had been a spectacular Super Bowl until one minute and 52 seconds remained. That's when tied at 35, third and eight for KC at the Philly 15. KC quarterback Pat Mahomes missed receiver Juju Smith-Schuster. But the officiating crew called a penalty on Philadelphia defender James Bradbury covering Kansas City's Smith-Schuster and giving Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City a first down at the eleven. Harrison Butker's field goal a minute 46 later gave the Chiefs the crown. Replays showed Philadelphia's Bradbury was guilty less of a hold and more of a <sighs> on Smith-Schuster. At minimum, even if there actually was some technical infraction there, it did not slow the receiver down, nor did it alter his route. It was ridiculous and especially ridiculous to decide the Super Bowl on. And unfortunately... And no, I am not suggesting there was a fix or a corrupt official or gambling or anything. But if the reality of legal gambling as a principal income stream for the National Football League and all the other sports leagues, the problem with that was not apparent before. It became really obvious last night. The ads and the really ticky-tacky call that decided the most wagered on sporting event in the country combined to smell just awful. Sadly, this all suggests that, and no, there was not one last night, but within a decade, there will be an NFL game-fixing or point-shaving scandal, more likely point-shaving, maybe even in the Super Bowl, because there are lots of very low-paid NFL employees of all kinds who can influence the outcome of a game. And they no longer have to get into the bed with the mob to influence the outcome of a game. They can do it themselves and then just go and bet on it themselves. And if you don't think there have already been Super Bowl gambling scandals, I refer you as ever to the best book on football's history ever written, Interference by Dan Moldea. M-O-L-D-E-A. Interference. As to the Super Bowl ads... They were really bad. They've been overrated for years, as you know. Try to remember the best one from 2022. Which one was it? What was the product? Who was in it? 
Speaking of smells, I can still get a whiff of the Caddyshack ones. That's still available in my nose right now. Also, the good one, the Ram spot about being afraid of buying an electric truck for fear of premature electrification. Wasn't there some sportscaster used to talk about teams or players celebrating too soon? And he'd use this stupid catchphrase, premature jocularity for, you know, like 30 years on SportsCenter, Fox Sports, NBC football, local news in L.A. and Boston. Wasn't there some guy who used to do that? <sighs> Before the game, Fox made a baseball announcement. They are adding Derek Jeter to their pregame show. This is kind of amazing because one of the points of Derek Jeter's baseball life these last 27 years has been never to say anything of interest about baseball or anything else in public. So he'll fit right in on the Fox pregame show. Fox has been hiring ex-superstars since they got baseball in 1996, and none of them has ever said anything. The one non-superstar they put on the pregame show was Steve Lyons, who I worked with in 1999 and 2000 when I did the pregame show, and we hated each other. But he said lots of stuff, and although most of it was wrong... I still did my best to showcase him, and one year I did it too well, and he won the Emmy Award as Best Studio Sports Analyst. And trust me, this guy Lyons couldn't spell Emmy. So now they're going to have Derek Jeter saying, he looked really good out there. Lastly, and continuing on the theme of TV sports, a terrible day for almost anybody who ever worked at ESPN. The first time I ever anchored SportsCenter, they broke me in on a couple of nights on the 2 a.m. edition the coordinating producer of that show was a veteran, larger-than-life guy in a big black beard and an even bigger sweater vest and a big voice. And I would work with him on and off in my first tenure there and again later, something almost everybody could say. He was the big picture guy for the company. He worked on the late sports centers, the early sports centers, the weekend sports centers, college basketball shows, hockey shows, football shows, special shows. And of all the producers I worked with there, only one of them did not try to indoctrinate me on the Bristol way of doing things. Barry Sachs would wait until his bosses were not around and then ask, how did you handle something like this in L.A.? Or, K.O., what would you do here? One time there was a heated exchange over something, Lord knows what. There were a lot of them. And Barry just stood there, arms folded, and when the executive left, he closed the door and he said, you're right. Actually, we're right. I agree with you. And we're never going to convince him of that. So how about this? You start doing this their way. Let me go massage them. Give me half an hour and see how much of your way I can get them to agree to. Don't get me wrong. Barry Sachs was an ESPN salesman. What we did mattered. Every show affected the brand. Anything less than the best was insufficient, and he would come down on you like a ton of bricks. But to the managers there, Barry was a manager-management guy. To the talent, Barry was a talent-friendly talent guy. To me, Barry seemed to be the guy who was trying to be right in whatever the situation called for. He and I understood each other on that. About three years in, we found out that we had both interned for the same New York City sportscaster named Bill Mazur, and we did it in consecutive years. Barry was at ESPN for more than three decades, and then he joined the sports journalism faculty at Quinnipiac College, and Saturday came the terrible news that Barry Sachs had suffered a massive heart attack, and yesterday came the worst news that he had died at the age of 63. 
Barry Sachs was able to be both that over-the-top ESPN salesman I mentioned and also the guy who knew he was being over-the-top and enjoyed letting you in both on the hyperbole and his self-awareness of the hyperbole. And he had one phrase that he used a lot in the 90s that summarized that. If he wasn't saying it, somebody was quoting him saying it. This is ESPN. Every day is the Super Bowl. And Barry Sachs died on the day of the Super Bowl. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Still ahead on Countdown, I'm sure you are still furious about the Super Bowl. How could they possibly not have interviewed the president? I know, I know, you don't care. I don't care, but there is a city where today that is the story and the only story. For insulation and self-absorption, no one is worse than politicians, except the people who cover politicians. Things I promised not to tell about Super Bowl presidential interviews, next. 
First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day to St. Louis and Theodore. And with a father named Theodore and a dog named Ted, you can understand my particular concern. This Theodore looks to be a shepherd puppy. He's just four weeks old. He should still be in the care of his mother. He's not. He's sick, parasites, mange. How he got away from her, we don't know, but Saving St. Louis Pets is trying to take care of him. So far, so good, but he's going to have to be in a vet's care for at least another four weeks, probably longer. Honestly, they're just trying to raise $700 for him on Cuddly. If you can help, you can find Theodore there or on my Twitter feed. I thank you, and Theodore thanks you. number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic me and things i promised not to tell and i like to think of myself as expert in many things many things more than i am actually expert in but there are one maybe two things in which i am genuinely the expert of experts and one of them is the overlap between sports and politics, in particular about media and sports and politics. I anchored the inauguration of Barack Obama as president on January 20th, 2009 on MSNBC, and 12 days later, I co-anchored the three-hour Super Bowl pregame show on NBC. And I am freshly reminded of the amazing butthurt delusion of the political media industrial complex about where it thinks its personnel, government officials, political entities, politicians, pundits, reporters, news organizations, where they rank in the grand scheme of things, especially compared to sports officials, sports team and league entities, sports executives, sports pundits, sports reporters, sports organizations, or if you're in Canada, sports organizations, Many political people are true sports fans and thus have a truer sense of this comparison, which they largely keep to themselves for reasons which will become obvious. But countless numbers of political people believe that on a scale of one to 100, sports in this country is about a 50, I guess, and political stuff is a 95. The reality is sports in this country is about a 70. And political stuff is about uh, a three, three and a half. Nearly all political people enjoy being in politics and simply assume that thus everybody else enjoys politics in the same way. In point of fact, almost nobody not in politics enjoys politics at all. What the political people think of their world and its incandescent attractiveness and thus their own incandescent attractiveness, is actually what the world of sports is really like. Virtually everybody in sports wakes up in the morning, at least most of the time, shouting, Yay! I make a living in sports! And virtually everybody watching sports wakes up in the morning shouting, Maybe today I'll find a way to make a living off sports. You will never convince the non-sports people in politics that this is even remotely true. The day before the Super Bowl, the newsletter of the website Politico led with, for 10 paragraphs, quote, Biden's Fox News snub. This morning, Politico wrote, in all seriousness, we have to ask, 
Was that such a good idea? Biden just passed up a critical opportunity to speak to millions of Americans who ignored his State of the Union, but sure as hell won't miss the Super Bowl, one that comes ahead of a likely 2024 re-election campaign launch. This just in, nobody watches the presidential interview in the Super Bowl pregame show. Nobody. Not when it was Biden, not when it was Trump, not when it was Obama, not when it was Bush. It may be on in tens of millions of American homes. People may even not change the channel, but in the world of places like Politico, the president appears on television and every viewer, be he alone or at the largest Super Bowl party imaginable, every viewer not only goes instantly silent, but hushes everybody else in the room and says, wait, we have to listen to this. I do not know of this having ever happened anywhere. He should relish a chance to spar with his conservative critics, some Democrats would argue. This goes on for 10 paragraphs. Later, much later, same newsletter, the startling news that Trump permitted classified documents to be uploaded to a campaign staffer's laptop and thumb drive, which would be an entirely new crime, that got one sentence in this same document. The 10 paragraphs about the greatest story of Super Bowl weekend, that there would not be a Fox interview of Joe Biden, not by Brett Baer, not by a Fox website with the oxymoronic name Fox Soul, then linked to an actual 13 further paragraphs with what a political writer named Christopher Catalago must have thought was a funny lead, quote, America will have to settle for the puppy bowl. The puppy bowl is there for people who do not want to watch the Super Bowl. I mean, there might be some overlap. Let's put it this way. It, at least it's there for people who don't want to watch the Super Bowl pregame show. And it's in the Super Bowl pregame show where the presidential interview ordinarily runs. The Puppy Bowl gets eh, somewhere around a million seven hundred thousand viewers, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. The whole five hours of Super Bowl pregame averages at any given moment 20 million viewers. Anyway, I said I was the expert on this particular sub subject. When radio began in this country, it was common for each of the handful of networks to have lead announcers who were supposed to be able to do anything. Ted Husing broadcast the World Series for CBS and the Rose Bowl and the big rowing regattas and major news stories like floods. He anchored the political conventions and he did the inauguration every four years. As TV took over, those jobs became specialized, and there is still some overlap in one area, the Olympics. Everybody from Walter Cronkite to Bob Costas to Katie Couric have hosted the Olympics. I was supposed to do it twice. But from 2006 through 2009, I anchored election nights on MSNBC and football night in America on NBC, and I did five political shows a week on cable and an hour a day on Dan Patrick's ESPN radio sports show. I am the overlap. And in fact, in 2009, when I went right from the inauguration to Tampa for the Super Bowl, there was a glitch on the afternoon of the Super Bowl game. If I remember right, Matt Lauer was on a stuck train 
or a plane that had been grounded at an airport somewhere, and they were convinced he was not going to get to the White House in time to interview Barack Obama live. So, said our producer Michael Weissman during the commercial break, what do you want to ask Obama? Because Lauer is not going to make it to the White House. He's got like five minutes. Assume it's going to be you. And I said, well, I can just ask him everything I would have asked him on if he'd been on Countdown Friday night. But that's not the point. Why don't we take this opportunity to not do the interview? I mean, you know, if Lauer can't make it, let's just say Lauer can't make it. So we canceled it. Who's going to notice? Who listens to this interview? Why do we do it? Doesn't anybody know that when a politician steps into the middle of a sporting event, it always hurts him? I was in the middle of this when Weissman said, okay, Lauer just showed up at the White House. Do you need help getting down from your high horse, Keith? Well, all right, I might have been on a high horse, but I was serious. People don't believe when I, of all people, say I do not like it when sports and politics get mixed. But what I mean by that is if athletes have political opinions or they take political stances, if Colin Kaepernick kneels or John Carlos and Tommy Smith give a black power salute or some MAGA golfer goes all political with his putts, that's a sports story. You have to cover it. But politicians... Or sportscasters? Politicians injecting themselves into sports? Sportscasters injecting themselves into politics or injecting politics into their sportscasts? No. This started with Richard Nixon phoning the Kansas City Chiefs locker room after they won the 1970 Super Bowl, and it was as cringeworthy then as it is now. Ronald Reagan advanced it to inviting winning teams to the White House. Soon it was whoever was president invited any team in any league to the White House. It is pure political exploitation, and it has never stopped making me flinch. And in 2004, we fell into this Super Bowl interview trap when CBS and Jim Nance inexplicably interviewed George W. Bush. Trump would not do the interview with NBC in 2018, and to my mind, that was his greatest act as president, his one selfless decision. And I swear, if Joe Biden or any other president would record a video saying, hey, this is the Super Bowl, no politics today, enjoy the game, it would probably goose his approval ratings. 40 years ago, when I was with CNN Sports, they sent me to Washington for the week because the locals were playing the Raiders in the 1983 Super Bowl. I covered the celebrations that night when they won and then the victory parade outdoors in a driving rainstorm and the head tech guy for CNN Washington assigned himself to run the lights and he got shocked so badly he had to go sit in the truck for an hour. Anyway, I also covered the team's flight home to D.C., and I went to the airport and interviewed players, and I went back to the bureau, and I edited my story, and we were about to feed my piece to headquarters in Atlanta when the assignment editor for CNN Washington literally ran through the studio screaming, Stop! Stop! And when she got to me, she said, Reagan's plane just landed. We have 10 seconds of him saying, Go Redskins on the tarmac. I know you'll want to lead with that. And I just looked at her and said, what sports fan wants to hear from a politician instead of the winning quarterback? You would have thought I had slapped her in the face. She backed away slowly. 
I told the engineer, just feed the tape. It's done. All this reminds me of a Rudy Giuliani memory I had completely suppressed until I started down the writing route on this one. I anchored what must have been an hour from the New York Yankees clubhouse at Shea Stadium after they won the 2000 World Series over the New York Mets. I was with Fox Sports, and we had televised the series, and part of the deal was we got our own little part of the winning team's clubhouse cordoned off. I mean, with red velvet ropes, like at the Oscars, and silver stanchions, and three chairs, and three cameras. And the players couldn't go in there unless we let them. Producers would drag celebrating players over to us. They would have to climb over the ropes, and we'd interview them. And sure enough, during the first commercial break, I nudged my color analyst, Steve Lyons, and I said, look over there to the left. It's Giuliani, and that's his publicist. And they were about five feet closer to us than they had been when we started. And then during the first interview, they, they moved another five feet closer to us. The minute we don't have a guest... Rudy is going to be there, line of sight, I say to Lyons. So somebody says, well, hey, let's get the mayor in here. He's right over here. Well, as I have alluded to previously, even in 2000, I knew Rudy was a self-promoting idiot, and I never ever said, let's get the mayor in here. So finally, 45 minutes after his slow creep towards our camera began, Rudy dropped any pretense of waiting to be asked. He had waited 45 minutes. We had not asked. So he just climbed over the red rope while we're on live, cut in front of one of the cameras on the pretext that he was just congratulating whichever Yankee player Lions and I were interviewing. I threw to commercial as fast as I could, and the baseball executive and the Fox Sports executive coordinating the broadcast came in, grabbed Giuliani politely but firmly, and escorted him and his PR person out of the clubhouse. To my mind, the only politician who has ever successfully inserted himself into a sporting event was Barack Obama, and that's because he did a sports thing. Come basketball tournament time, Obama fills out the same bracket that 70 million other Americans do every year, and he's got a reason for every team he picks, and it's really nerdy. And if you don't like college basketball, you may actually come away from that going, I'm not sure about this guy. But... It is both astute politics and worthwhile TV sports programming, unlike that done by every other politician ever. So that leads me to my thought about the Super Bowl presidential interview, if ever it resumes. The president, whoever it is, should not agree to a news interview in the Super Bowl pregame show. Never. He should sit down with one of these now ubiquitous TV sports gambling guys I'm thinking maybe Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad and our time together on BoJack Horseman and explain to him which Super Bowl prop bets he was putting his money on. I would watch that. Hell, if Joe Biden or anybody else got onto the Super Bowl pregame show and explained he was betting $100 million of taxpayer money on the visiting quarterback, not throwing a Super Bowl touchdown pass, but catching one, and it happened... That president would guarantee himself re-election.
Countdown has come to you from the studios of Olderman Broadcasting Empire World Headquarters in the Sports Capsule Building in New York. Thank you for listening. Here are our credits. Most of the music, including the theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Kenny Main. Everything else is pretty much my fault. And again, my condolences to the family and loved ones and friends of Barry Sachs. That's countdown for this, the 769th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? Yes, road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.